Nehemiah 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, We've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, You are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, As far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his thirty-second year, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took forty shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lauded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry 
were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favour, O my God, for all I have done for these people. me so far, pre M&M's and uh, babysitting, it's uh, looking good, <laughs> but it wasn't good for so many people in the time of Nehemiah, and also elsewhere in the world today. At first verse, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. And this last couple of days we have seen men and their wives raising a great outcry against their fellow countrymen. Country, of course, is Greece, and the outcry of the protesters against the austerity measures that the government there has agreed in order to get another $130 billion of bailout money. Were they justified in their outcry? How is the situation of the Jews here in Nehemiah's day any different from that in Greece? Why did Nehemiah react with anger at what was going on at that time? Well, these are some of the questions we'll be looking at. But first, for those who are visiting or are new to this series of Nehemiah, which we've been going through for these last few weeks, let me just recap as to where we've got to. It's the 5th century BC. Jerusalem is a city in great need. The walls are in ruins and the people are in spiritual ruin and have been for several generations. But God, in his great mercy, is going to do something about it. And he chooses a man called Nehemiah, who at the time is a Jewish exile in in Persia, um, and puts a burden on his heart. (coughs) And Nehemiah, who is a top civil servant to the king, gives up his comfortable way of life and goes to Jerusalem and encourages the the people of Judah to rebuild the, the walls and to rebuild their lives. Everybody gets stuck in, people from the surrounding towns and villages. They take this step of repentance but there's still a lot of spiritual repair work to do in their lives. And this only becomes clear as they face the challenges um, that they're going to be confronted with. Last time was the first test when they met with external opposition, foreign enemies threatening to come and kill them. And unsurprisingly, some of them started to have doubts, to, to be afraid. But Nehemiah said to them, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. Well, this week we see an almost more deadly threat, which comes not from external enemies, but from within, internal division and resentment. In some ways, nothing has changed today for the church. When churches struggle, it is often because of internal division, of disagreements. People leave because they're unhappy with some aspect of church life. Pastors quit because they're under stress. Churches can look fine on the outside, but uh, underneath there may be underlying issues, which if they're not dealt with, will soon rear their their ugly head. And you could say the problems in this chapter we just read uh, were caused by their rebuilding project. You know, that the financial issues that these people were struggling with were made worse by the fact that people had to give up their jobs and go and spend time building the wall. But the real problem we'll see was caused by an underlying sin, and it was the the project that brought that 
to the surface. Now, I hope there won't be fallouts. I hope there won't be pastoral casualties from our building project. But we shouldn't be surprised if there are. If that does happen, the likelihood is not that it's caused by the building project itself, but the underlying issues are brought to the surface. And the positive thing is that when these issues do arise, we need to look at them not as a problem, but as Nehemiah did, as an opportunity to address a spiritual issue and through that to grow in faith and godliness. It may be a painful process, but as we were looking at in the leadership course uh, last weekend, what we should all be striving for is character, godly character. And if we want to grow in godliness, then we need to be prepared to experience pain. So what is a problem that some of the people here in Jerusalem are facing? Well, let's have a look at the situation. Try and understand what is going on here, because we're told in verse 1 that the men and their wives raised this great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Uh, this is not just the men, this is the men and the women. This is something that's affected whole families, and quite rightly they're raising an outcry. This is something that is not right. And the basic problem for them is poverty. Unlike the situation in Greece, this is not because for years they've been living beyond their means, they've been reckless with their money, but because they've been hit hard by famine. They can't afford to eat, let alone pay the taxes that are due to the king of Persia. They can't pay the interest on their debt. And so they've had to resort to mortgaging their their fields, their vineyards, their homes, and even having to allow their children to be taken into slavery to pay off some of those debts. So why are they annoyed with their Jewish brothers? Well, because in their hour of need, these nobles and officials are exacting usury. They're charging excessive interest, and they're accepting Jewish children as slaves. They are your modern-day loan sharks. And the ironic thing was that Nehemiah and others were buying back Jewish slaves that had been sold to, to Gentiles, allowing them to return to their families, only for their families to have to then sell them to their own countrymen into slavery. And at a time when they should be showing compassion, they're tightening the screw. Well, what's Nehemiah's reaction to all this? In verse 6, it says, Nehemiah says, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Now, people get angry all the time, don't they? You only need to open the newspaper and you'll see somebody who's got angry this week. It may be Fabio Capello, for the FA meddling in the choice of the England captain. Maybe Harry Redknapp, the prosecutors were bringing charges against him. It may be the Greeks against these austerity measures they think are unfair. Anger is an extreme emotional reaction. And it's to something, to someone. And that emotion, what it does is reveal our hearts, what is important to us. More often than not, that it's, it's a negative emotion. Because we're getting worked up about something that is being maybe taken away from us something that is important to us, or maybe it's not getting what we want. Look back at uh, chapter 4, verse 1, for example. Here we see Sanballat, verse 1 of chapter 4, says, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. Sanballat was an official. Uh, For him, power and status were important, and the reason he was getting angry was because there was a threat to his position here by the Jews rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah's anger, on the other hand, was positive. 
because it was prompted by his compassion for the people of Judah. And he was annoyed that they were suffering due to the oppression and sin of their fellow Jews. His, right, his anger was positive. As, as Bede Jarrett said, he said, the world needs anger. The world often continues to allow evil because it isn't angry enough. God gets angry. But his anger is a righteous anger. It's an anger at sin and injustice. And that is the anger here of Nehemiah. But notice that Nehemiah doesn't immediately act in his anger. Look what it says. He first ponders the accusations made. And then, having reflected on it, he does something about it. He accuses the nobles and officials. He says, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. And he calls together a large meeting to deal with it publicly. And he describes the situation to all those present. He says, in verse 8, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers, only for them to be sold back to us. This is a ridiculous uh, circle going on here. Now, Nehemiah admits himself that he is also lending people money and grain. But the difference appears to be the exacting of usury. And he, and he tells them, give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. Now, the commentators seem to think that the hundredth part is, is probably a monthly rate, it's a 12% um, per annum interest. But what Nehemiah is appealing to here is not, you know, what is the rate of interest you are charging, he's appealing to their hearts. He's saying, here are your, your fellow Jews who not only have no fields and homes... They've had to give their children into slavery. They don't know where the next meal is coming from. These are extreme times. Where is your compassion? And before we come to, to their response, how they responded to that accusation, I think one of the things I've been grappling with is why would they act like this? Would we like, act like this in that situation? What exactly was it that made them ignore the situation of their fellow countrymen? and appear to act without any compassion. And this really gets to the spiritual problem at the heart of it, because they can't have been unaware of their plight. You know, no one's going to let their children go into slavery unless they are desperate. So why would the nobles and officials insist on the loans and the interest being repaid and be prepared to take those children as slaves? Well, we, we can only speculate, maybe because they felt, well, they were legally entitled to do that, after all. Um, they were complying with the law, maybe that's what they felt. Maybe it was because, well, that was, was what everybody else was doing. And so somehow it must be right, the, the bandwagon effect. Things can seem more reasonable, can't they, when uh, lots of people are doing them. Often do we hear our children say, well, everybody else is doing it. How often do we use the, the yardstick of, of common practice to justify something that we know is deep down not quite right? Maybe when it came to the interest, they were saying, well, that is the market rate. I'm not charging excessive interest, I'm just charging what the markets charge. We often hear politicians, don't we, use the markets to defend their actions. But whatever the rationale was, ultimately they felt that it was more important for them to get their money than provide for their brothers in need. 
And people can love money for different reasons. You know, it can be pure greed. It can be plain materialism. And for Christians living in the West as we do, materialism is one of the biggest challenges to our faith. It's something that is contending with God for the number one place in our lives. But at the root of the love of money, at the root of money worries, is a lack of trust in God. Deep down it reveals an insecurity, an insecurity that says, if I write off this loan, if I forgive the interest, my finances won't look quite as good. I might find myself in that same position of poverty. Maybe when the famine's over, when the wall is finished, maybe when the economy improves, then I might be able to to let them off. Then I can be generous. And I wonder if uh, we are tempted to, to act in the same way sometimes. You know, when the recession's over, when my current job uncertainty has cleared up a bit, when we've got the children through university, then I'll be able to, to give more generously. But there will always be a reason to hang on to our money. Because we want to be in control. And when an unexpected financial hit comes along, when the car blows up or something, the roof falls off the house, we get angry, don't we? Because it just threatened our financial security. To try and take control over our lives in that way is to say, God has given me all these good things, but I'm worried that he might choose to take them away. And how would I survive then? If we believe that all we have comes from God, and he expects us to use it for his glory, then that will change our attitude to our money. It's like we own a joint bank account with God and every time we make an expenditure, every time we make a donation, we are signing off jointly with God. God is the provider of all good things. In Hebrews it says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Well, when Nehemiah identifies the problem in this passage, that that lack of compassion, that that self-centeredness, self-preservation, he challenges the people of God here to change their ways. And he does that by asking them a question. And that question is, what you are doing is not right. And then the question is, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? Shouldn't you walk in the fear of of our God. It's down there in verse 9. And later on he describes the way previous governors have acted and he says, but out of reverence for God, I didn't act like that. It was reverence for God that is driving all that he does. And it was appealing to the Jews' reverence for God that he's questioning the motivations for their actions. He's challenging them to change their ways. We need to ask ourselves that question this morning. What is it that motivates us? What is it that motivates us to get up in the morning? To go to work? To go and visit somebody? To to phone somebody up? To go to a meeting? To come here this morning? What is it that is motivating us to come here? Unless it is out of reverence for God, then we will soon lose our way. We'll become discouraged. Because if we're motivated by something else, by maybe the praise of others, or making ourselves feel good 
But that motivation will soon dry up as soon as the praise dries up, as soon as we, we just can't be bothered anymore. So what does it mean, though, to walk in the fear of God, to act out of reverence for him? Because essentially they mean the same thing. Well, a couple of the Bible references might help. Psalm 128 says this, it says, Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. Proverbs 9.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. These are the couplets in the Psalms and Proverbs. Often are used to emphasise something by saying it again in a slightly different way. So fear of the Lord has something to do with walking in his ways, of obeying God. It also has something to do with knowing God. And those two go together. The more we know God, the more we will understand how to please him and walk in his ways. But it's also not just understanding what God wants us to do, it's being prepared to do it. Because the great thing is that each one of us here can know God, we can know what he wants us to do. If we just open his word, he's revealed that to us. And we can obey him if we want to, but we have to want to obey him. And the reason we don't always obey him is not because we don't understand what what he wants us to do, it is because there is sin in us that is blinding us to what he wants us to do. That is coming up with all sorts of excuses why we shouldn't do what we know deep down is the right thing. Adam and Eve knew in the Garden of Eden that they shouldn't take that fruit. And yet they bought the lie. They made the excuse that God was somehow spoiling their fun. That he didn't want the best for them. Fear of God, reverence for God is a willingness to submit our lives to him to know that what he wants for us is the best for us. And we do that because we know him and we do that because we love him. And sin, in comparison, is when we are motivated by something other than reverence for God. The new Jews in this passage knew deep down what they should do, but they were motivated by something else. And that was really the love of money. But Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, the encouraging thing in this passage is that having had that lack of compassion, that need for reverence for the Lord made clear to them. The people didn't argue, didn't try to defend themselves, they accepted their guilt. Look at verse 8. It says they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Quite often our first reaction is when we're accused of something is to go on the defensive, isn't it? To somehow justify our actions. Um, And even if we know we have been wrong, sometimes we'll try and um, provide mitigating factors to make us appear better than we, we really are. People here remain quiet. It was acknowledgement of guilt. And when Nehemiah told them what they should do to, to repent and to demonstrate that repentance, they were up for it. They said, we will give everything back. We will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And they took an oath to do what they promised. It's a great act of repentance, isn't it? It reminds me of the story of Zacchaeus in the New Testament, the tax collector. 
Jesus went to him, to his house, and he opened his eyes. He, he convicted him of his sin. For him, the big sin was greed. And when he'd had his eyes opened by, by Jesus, he repented, and he did something about it. He said he would give half of his possessions to the poor, and if he cheated anybody, he would give them four times back as much as he cheated them. He demonstrated that his life had been changed by God's grace. And it is God's grace that changed him. It's God's grace that is changing here the people of Israel. It is he who opens our eyes to sin. It is he who is prepared to forgive us for our sin. It is he who allows us to make that fresh start. Well, this episode starts with an outcry, an accusation made by some Jews against their fellow Jews. It had the potential of going horribly wrong, didn't it? It could have ended up with bitterness, resentment, and yet by the grace of God, it ends up with a whole assembly saying, Amen. Praising the Lord and the people doing as they had promised. This is the church coming together. This is the church united. This is restored communion. Conflict will occur in church life because churches are full of sinners. We are all sinners here. And we make mistakes. But if we're prepared to acknowledge our mistakes and change our ways, we can grow to become stronger as a church and we can be, as our final point is, a positive witness for Jesus Christ. When Nehemiah challenges the nobles and officials, he says, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? And he carries on to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. The way we behave with one another, the way we show love and compassion to one another, the way in which we're able to resolve conflict, to forgive one another, The way in which we seek God's direction together as a church can be the greatest witness for Jesus Christ. But it can also, if we get it wrong, be the greatest dishonour to Jesus Christ. We can attract people into the church, but we can also repel people from the church. People should never hear us gossiping, saying a bad word about each other, because when we do that, we're dishonouring Jesus Christ. We should never gossip or say a bad word about anybody else outside the church either. And in these few verses at the end of the passage, Nehemiah describes how he lived his life as a governor in the fear of the Lord. And he wasn't here just telling the Jews how they should behave. He was then trying to model it to them. And he he was not perfect. But he tried to live out his life in reverence of the Lord. And the way that that looked different from the lives of others was that he was not interested in what he was entitled to. He was not interested in his rights, what he deserved. He had compassion for those in his care. He devoted himself to the work of the Lord. He was exceedingly generous. He shared what he had. I'm sure if tough times had come, he wouldn't have complained, but he would have accepted it. You know, we are currently in a recession. It may have hit some of us harder than others, How are we going to turn that into an opportunity to share the gospel, to witness to others that we still trust in the sovereign Lord, the one who provides us with all good things? Nehemiah was living in anticipation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, in anticipation of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ being demonstrated. He was the one 
that though he was rich, yet for ourselves became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich.